When it started to become a little bit more regular for people to like host the Egyptian teachers online, my brain was just like, but why isn't anyone doing this for Khairia? Hello everyone, you're listening to the Belladance Live podcast. I'm your host Jana Komarnitska and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are our regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Belladance art form. Plus, I really like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. Jelena and Belladance Evolution are back, taking their show and programs across the globe. You know how many guests we had previously on this podcast shared how much the experience with BDE pushed their dance career. You can have it too. Audition for Jelena's latest production and join Jungle Book cast. All details at www.joinbde.com. Direct link in the show notes, joinbde.com. If you follow my social media, you probably saw a big announcement I did these days. Our Cairo Balladance Guide is launching now. It's a new program, new intensive, available at the Yana Dance Club, and it definitely captures our dance and travel adventures here in Cairo so far. It has both practical dance classes, diving into the Egyptian style, and not only diving into dancing with live music and variety of classes available in Cairo, because it's not only about taking private classes or attending festivals here. There is so much more. And the whole section about lectures. Lectures about dance to give you more understanding and insights of what we're actually doing, as well as uh, taking you sort of around, giving you tips, suggestions, practical ideas, what to do, how to deal with different situations, what to be ready for, and what resources are available here in Cairo. So all that is already available, and I really can't wait for members of the club to dive into you can take a look too it's available at yanadanceclub.com link will be in the show notes but i must admit that cairo definitely captures attention of many dancers and not only cairo egypt in general and our today's guest is a definite confirmation of this statement Shining is a performer instructor and researcher of egyptian traditional dances whose work emphasizes the cultural and historical influences on the medium of dance in and from Egypt. She is the founder of banatmazin.com, a website dedicated to the legacy of the famous Luxor-based family created in cooperation with Karia Mazin to provide recorded lessons, interviews, song translations, family bios, streamable music and more, as learning resources for dancers around the world. She continues to perform research and teach online and abroad since her move to Egypt in the summer of 2021. And I had a pleasure of meeting her here in Cairo and doing this interview in person. So in this episode, you will hear about the idea of documenting classes with Korea, how it arrived and what was the impulse for Shining to start this project and how she ended up moving to Egypt. 
We also talked about the importance of studying Gawazi style and not only with Korea, but different dancers and different styles and how they're spread through Egypt, but they have also different uh, um, cultural and uh, social circumstances. We also talked about the term Gawazi itself and what actually it means. We also talked about differentiating music appropriate for Gawazi style because Shining has diving deep into researching and documenting songs that Banat family used in their performances. And we talked about different ways how you can support Karia Mazin today because her situation is definitely very challenging and she pretty much entirely relies on the support of her foreign students. So all this and more in today's episode, don't forget to check the show notes. Today there are a lot of links on how you can find out more about Korea, about Gawazi style, uh, contacts for you to get in touch whenever you are visiting Egypt and Luxor to take some classes and a lot of things. And of course, don't forget to screenshot and share this episode, send to your friends, post on social media. The more people know about these resources, the better it is and the more supportive to community ideas. So don't forget to do your input in this project too. This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for 7 days for free. Hello, dear Shining. Welcome to the Belly Dance Life podcast. And uh, I'm really happy to meet you here in Cairo. Cairo is a meeting place for so many dancers and so many projects. So happy to meet you here and uh, happy to do this interview today with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to get to talk with you today. I've been a big fan of your podcasts for a long time. And so it's kind of exciting to get to be part of that. <laughs> uh, that's cool. That's cool to hear. Um, I know that you have a very special project that is your focus a lot in dance and, and work in general. But before that, I would like to ask you, like, how did you get involved in belly dance? How did your story begin? Yeah, I was 15 when I went to um, an SCA event, which is like a medieval recreative, you know, pseudo medieval society. Uh, and I saw belly dancing there and I was telling my mom about it. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And she's like, well, one of my friends is taking some belly dance classes at a gym. Um, so we went together for a couple weeks and I really liked it. And she's like, I think this is more your thing than mine. So you keep going. And uh, yeah, that's like, actually a lot of my friends got into it the same way. I think in the Northwest, there's so many people like also involved in the SCA that have belly dance crossover. And so. But belly dance, it kind of took over a big part of your life and it started as a hobby as from what I can understand. How did that transition happen? Was it any point a specific decision like, okay, I really want to focus a lot on belly dance or it just happened, you know, naturally like at yeah. some point you realize, oh, that's what's happening in my life. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember 
Um, I think I'd been taking dance classes for about two years. So I was like 17 when I saw the belly dance superstars. And I remember turning to my mom and just being like, I want to feel like this every night for the rest of my life. And from then on, I was just like obsessed and I wanted to, I mean, I always knew I was going to be an artist. I used to draw and things like that. And I um, was always trying to figure out like, well, how can I survive, you know, like what kind of art will I do? And when dance came in, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, but along the very long road since then, then I have, uh, I think gotten pretty jaded about it because it just felt like it was never going to happen. And, um, you know, realize like my, just the way my brain works, uh, and some of the health issues and things I've had over a year, over the last like decade, um, have made that seem impossible. Um, but I still like couldn't give it up. Um, so it's always been sort of like, I've always had like a, some other kind of job, but I have continued to do dance. Um, and when I, finally came to Egypt. I wasn't coming here to work as a dancer. I was coming for research, um, but having the opportunity to work a little bit to support myself um, has, and actually like has funneled into the research as well. So that's, I, I don't know if I would like say that I'm, you know, I don't know that like I have, I would define myself as someone who is maybe successfully working as a dancer, except for in very small batches, just because when I was living in the US, it um, was not, uh, you know, ever something that could like support me. But here in Cairo, in general, it is like altogether the all activities dance related. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, there's more opportunities for work. They may not all be super great, but you know, they, I can at least say I've been able to support myself a little bit while living here. And mm -hmm. um, it's actually, I've learned a lot through doing that too. I just don't, I don't know everything yet, what I've learned. You know, it's like you take a while to like absorb all the experiences and I'm just sort of in that, I need to relearn everything that I knew phase and absorb and observe. In what sense relearn? Um, I don't know, like, I don't know how else to explain it. Like when I moved here, I had been teaching, um, online for years and doing, I had like taught inline or taught, uh, in-person classes before that. And when I moved to Cairo, I was still teaching a little bit online, but I just felt, or sorry, when I moved to Egypt, cause I was in Luxor first, I started to feel like I shouldn't be teaching because I just needed to like absorb like, I, I don't know if all people are like this, but the, I've noticed these patterns and flows in my life where I go through periods of needing to intake and then periods of needing to output. And the thing that I've been, you know, like I always wanted to be a performer. I never really wanted to be a teacher. I got into teaching because I realized that, you know, that belly dance superstars fantasy I had at some point in my life, they didn't actually hire performers. They were hiring teachers. So I'm like, well, I have to get good at teaching if I want to like to perform, uh, which is a really roundabout way of getting back to my point, which is that like here having the opportunity to actually perform and develop those skills 
and spend time just in the absorbing and developing phase is something I've needed for a really long time. And my subconscious is just absolutely being like, like, don't, uh, uh, that sound effect was the X arms for people who can't actually see what I'm doing, but that's, you know, it's like the nonverbal way of saying like, it is not the time for this. It is the time for this other thing. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. I but. can definitely like <laughs> agree and relate. And there are different phases for different things. And especially with Cairo, I remember first months when we just came here, everyone was telling us, oh, Cairo is so multi-layered, so multi-layered. And only now I kind of feel like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> there are indeed so many different things. And there is time for like, it's kind of like impossible to observe and intake it all at once. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, especially, I mean, this area is crazy enough, but when you have all of the social media stuff on top of that, it is completely overwhelming. Like, I don't think that I had ADHD as a kid, but as an adult, I have, like, in the last four years or something, it has developed, like, severely, or, like, I just can't, I can't process all of the the things we're now supposed to be able to to process on a daily basis and for me I think that makes me pretty unfunctional so I like I've always been aware I'm not a type a personality I'm not uh hugely ambitious or willing to burn the candle at both ends or whatever um partly because I'm just physically not able to do that but being here has had me in Egypt has really made me have to be more decisive about how I spend my energy. Um, since I'm by myself 90% of the time, I don't have the support system. And, you know, I would probably kill myself if I like tried to like keep up with what other, what social media makes me believe other people are doing. <laughs> but I think it's very, you know, like a regular thing to observe around just because in 2023 especially with this internet and especially in big cities we have access to so much more and it's not only information it's also opportunities via social media via internet you find like oh there's this happening that this happening and like you get access to either information or knowledge as a like uh, there is information about things that are happening but there is also knowledge about oh there's this to learn this to learn like and you have this access way faster so especially for people who expose themselves to all this information, it kind of feels super, super overwhelming. overwhelming. And uh, yeah, in Cairo, there's so much to observe. Like, uh, so I can totally relate. You mentioned that you came to Egypt in general for the purpose of research first. Yeah. Uh, can you tell a little bit more about this research? Yeah, so I... Um, kind of have to go back a little bit here in my brain. I, I don't wanted to come to Egypt for like 10 years or more. Like I could never afford to come to Egypt, um, until I had the opportunity to work in China. Um, I was there for a couple of years teaching English and I was saving up money to like pay off student loans and things. Um, and I had the opportunity to do Sahra's journey through Egypt program. So I took the money I'd been saving that first year and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to stay here longer to pay off my loans, but I might not have the opportunity to go to Egypt again. 
Um, so I did her program while I had the opportunity um, because I really wanted to, I had wanted to come to Egypt because I wanted to understand dance in the cultural context. Like I had really just had this confusion around like, why is dance taboo, but also really adored and, you know, other things like that, that had just been sort of sitting there in my subconscious for years and years. And when I was on tour, I had the opportunity to meet Khairiya Mazin um, from the Banat Mazin. And I was already interested in traditional Egyptian dances, um, you know, like the what like real people were doing, not in theater stages, but like in in the real world of uh, in, or the original world of entertainment, I guess. Um, and I had been exposed a little bit to Gawazi dance from other teachers. And when I took her class, I was just like, okay, this is not at all like what I had had in any Gawazi class. And I just knew that I really wanted to come back and learn from her. Hmm. Um, and I fantasized like, oh, maybe I could like come for like three months or I, I, ha, ha, I don't know how that will ever happen. But I thought, you know, maybe I can save up some money because when I was in China, I didn't have any, ex you know, really any expenses. And I um, thought, you know, I would be able to save up some money and then come back to Egypt for a year. But Corona happened. <laughs> and so I ended up like living in my mom's house for a year while Corona was going on um, and teaching online. And when I started when it started to become a little bit more regular for people to like host the Egyptian teachers online, my brain was just like, but why isn't anyone doing this for Khairiya? Like a lot of people want to learn from her. And apparently, you know, she, it's been really difficult to bring her outside of Egypt. So I thought like, surely someone with more resources and like an organizationally minded brain will do something like that. And, um, I didn't really see it happening. And I also was, some of these uh, thoughts were kind of coming together in my head and I, I just saw this website, like, you know, the, the kind of the beginning of the website was just the thing of like, why isn't there one consolidated place online already that has all the like articles and interviews with the family? Because there's a lot of stuff online, but I've never seen any teachers uh, page or something that like had a consolidated list and then all these other ideas. And I'm like, I think, you know, if I could go to Luxor and like do these online classes with Kyria, maybe I could make her an online school. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wasn't, I mean, I, because Corona like blew up the plans, I wasn't able to like save up a bunch of money, but I, um, I took what money I had and I bought the plane ticket and I was like, well, everybody else does it, right? They just like show up on their last dollar and somehow it works out. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, universe, let's do it. Um, which is the very long story for, I came to Egypt and I spent a couple months in Cairo. Uh, Cause what, it was such a big ordeal to get here while like Corona was still going on. Um, and I won't go into that, but like, 
yeah, it, it, was took, it took a very long time to actually get into the country and flying out and back in. And um, so when I finally got here, it was like such a big achievement that my brain was like, well, now what do we do? Because I didn't have, really didn't have the money or the, the grounding yet to go down to Luxor and try and figure all of that out. So I kind of spent a few months in Cairo at Yasmina's place, actually, um, just trying to get sort of settled and figure, you know, like just align my energy to the craziness that is Cairo, I guess, after like, you know, living in my mom's basement for a year with like major depressions. So, um, I finally found some work um, and I went and worked out in Sokna for about a month and saved up money and then decided I was going to take that money to go down to Luxor and um, approach Kyria about uh, this project that was forming in my mind. Because for, first I had to see if she was interested. Do, did you speak Arabic language? No. Uh, so when, all that without speaking local language. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, like I had a couple words and my Arabic has gotten better since coming. I can speak like a little bit and understand a little bit. But, um, you know, I had to prioritize various things. And um, but so we had a translator. I already um, somehow I knew about Heba and I, I don't remember now if she was the one, if I got introduced to her through Sahra's group or I saw her online or something, but um, I somehow became aware of her. And so she was the one that was helping me with Kyria a lot. So when I uh, was having lessons or I, I went in to um, approach her about this idea, like I, I first, I like I started by taking like a month of lessons with her because I'm like, oh, I can't. It wouldn't be right, and like I need a base of understanding because the class. I took a couple lessons with her when I was here in 2019 with the, the Journey Through Egypt group. We did our group lesson, and then I took a couple private lessons, and I knew from that that I, just really needed to understand Kyria's perspective and her base of movements before I could really do anything and you know to get to know her a little bit to to say like I have this thing I want to do um would you be okay with that and um so we did that and so I was getting to know her uh, with Heba's help translating um and that kind of turned into after she uh, you know approved like I don't I don't know if she understood fully the kind of concept, mm -hmm. she just knew like, these are the things I want to do and you know, like she'll be getting paid for it. And... Yeah, let's let's a little bit maybe talk about the setting and environment like Korea, because for many people, like they may not realize that like, she's still, I don't know for you, like when I was in Luxor, I was taking class, she was teaching literally in her very small apartment. It's like, I don't know, one bedroom apartment, super small. And the music was from cassette player. Yeah. yeah. And I already knew that her cassette player was like, it's been on its last legs for a very long time and she needs to have it replaced and she hasn't been able to get a new one. But also the cassettes themselves are um, not in great condition. And so one of the things I, I did when I came was to bring her, um, uh, what do you, like one of those USB speaker, flash drive mm -hmm. speakers, 
um, and we digitized her cassettes. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, because the cassettes are already damaged, there's a lot of like popping and crackling and like some skipped areas, but it, and she's not really used, I mean, like she uses it when I'm there, but I talked with some other people who went to take classes with her. And I think that, you know, like she's tried to learn it a little bit, but she's more comfortable with the technology she's familiar with. But there I was wanted... no speaker two months ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my I, <laughs> mean, I get it. You know, like she she's gonna use what she's comfortable with. But I also wanted to pr provide an alternative in the case that, like, because that stuff's not gonna last forever. Mm. And um... can we talk a little bit about the importance of career and her family and Gawazi dancers in general as for ballet dancers? Because many ballet dancers, especially the ones who just begin their ballet dance journey, they may not even realize, okay, Gawazi, who is that? And why, why should I care about that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good question I've been asking myself because it's something I, I'm very fond of, but I, I, it seems like other people don't really care and it frustrates me. And I, I think, you know, most belly dancers, especially if you're interested in Egyptian dances, right? Like I'm going to be more specific because we have dance from different regions, but if you're interested in performing Egyptian belly dance, you need to have a familiarity with the folk dances around that or the traditional dances around that. Um, so. I think a lot of belly dancers, they take like a workshop on Gawazi because of that, you know, somebody told them, oh, you need to know about folk dance. So they take like a Saidi workshop and maybe they take a Gawazi workshop and a, you know, a Malaya or whatever, you know, like a stage dances. Um, and then think that like, that's kind of enough. But what I've realized is that, you know, what Khairia and her family does, the it's called Rakshabi, right? It, there's a lot of dances in Egypt that you could define as Rakshabi, which is just like traditional dance. But yeah, Raks is dance, Shabi is like more like local, let's say, yeah, people. Yeah, like, local, yeah. traditional, popular. Um, but it is an art form on its own, uh, which has a lot of crossover with Rakshari, but it is different and it is its own thing and it really at this point i understand that it should be treated as its own form of art that like need you know it's it's not just song it's or sorry it's not just dance either right like traditionally um not just her and her sisters right they have their their own way of doing it but there are plenty of other families in um, the south that perform uh the same dance and they're, they're not just dancers, they're also singing. They have to know uh, not just traditional local songs, but they also, you know, maybe know like Um Kasum and other like Tarab singers. Um, and I know some people will be like, that's not the right way to use that word, but like, let's just for, you know, like <laughs> the community knows what that means, uh, hopefully. Um, the, those kind of monologue singers, uh, you know, they also would maybe know some of those songs. They're playing Sagat, you know, they know the music very well. And a lot of times they're directing the music as they want it and working with the musicians. They have to be good entertainers because they're working at family events or worked at family events. Um, so they have to know how to deal with all the things that happen just as entertainers, right? So, and all of that goes in and influences the way that the dance uh, or the 
the art of Rakshabi is performed in this context. So, um, you know, if we look at Khairiya's family, her oldest sister, Saad, uh, was also a really amazing singer. And she was uh, featured on the radio several times and, um, you know, like taught a lot of the younger sisters and everything. And um, so I'm getting away from the question you asked no, me. No, that's, that's, that's great. I think, you know, uh, what I would like to see is that people are, are taking it seriously and treating it with the same respect and investment that you would Rashari, that there are some crossovers, but it, it is also its own thing that can appear deceivingly simple. Like you might look at her and be like, oh, she's not really doing anything. But if, if you, anyone who's ever actually tried to dance along with her or her sisters will tell you like, it's way more complicated than it appears. And you know, there's a lot of subtlety and, you know, part of the enjoyment of, um, for myself, part of the enjoyment of the way that she moves is that she takes like these same sort of family categories of movements and, you know, she's doing them just a little bit differently at different times. And, you know, it's, it's about her musicality and her own personal enjoyment and when she's really, in, you know, like feeling creative, you can tell the difference and you just see these little changes, but like it takes more of a trained eye, I think. And unfortunately, in even in Egypt, uh, a lot of people don't really appreciate what she's doing or what her family did just because they are, I think, more and more used to seeing staged folklore um, and seeing belly dance and getting away from like the more traditional styles of entertainment. There's a lot of people, if you've talked to like older generations, they still remember the Banat Mazin and like they really like that thing, but it, um, you know, it's not as common to see anymore. And so if your audience, if their audience isn't uh, seeing it and exposed to it and used to I mean, I can't assume that what they're looking for is the subtlety of movement, right? Like that's probably a, a dancer focus thing. But um, one thing I suspect is the less that people are seeing it, the less in, enculturated the younger generation is to appreciate it. Mm. They become more enculturated to appreciate what they see on social media, which is often uh, very, very different. It's, it is very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And even one generation after another, like even the preferences in songs, music, not even dance visually, like there is all that. Yeah. And there is also a lot of stereotypes and connotations about dance profession too. And one thing that I kind of want to add, I think, for many dancers, or belly dancers or people who think, oh, I just want to do raksharki or belly dance. Like, okay, I will learn folklore, but it's not my thing. But the important specific of Gawazi is that they were historically professional entertainers, professional performers, even way before belly dance oriental that's as we call it today got informed they were already there on the scene and it's still different from other folk dances because most folk dances they are social dances of people who dance for their fun at their own gatherings parties at the village and then this form dance informed for gawazi it probably was the case too at some point but they also worked as professional 
performers and that, that's why there is this mix in their knowledge between their tradition Gawazi but also other dances they can do stick and do Saidi dance and uh, like uh, classical they may sing uh, Um Kalsum because it was always a mix of okay it's not just about my traditions from entertaining point of view, how can I entertain and capture audience on what repertoire I need to have? Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good point. Historically, the Gawazi and the Awalam, they are pre-belly dance. So if you you know are trying to understand the development of belly dance or Rakshari in Egypt, you have to look at you know, how did the Gawazi dance? How did the Awalam dance? And obviously there's not like a ton of videos uh, and we can't, you know, like see videos from like the 1800s or whatever. So what a lot of people have done is look at the existing uh, famous Gawazi like the Benat Mazin and other Awalam from Cairo like Nazlul Adel um, and Zubal Klabatia and, and people like this and they try and extrapolate. So that actually like that kind of was focused more on like the modern context of what I was doing, but that train of thought is a big part of what led me to like be here and be studying with Kyria. And part of my areas of interest is I am trying to look at, you know, what's happening now, what's happened in the last like 40 years, you know, with the video content and things we have and like, how does that compare to, um, you know, like written examples of movement from travel accounts and things like that in the 1800s or whatever. And, you know, where's, where's the crossover and take ideas from that about what dance in that period might've looked like. Yes. Yes. And another reality, if you're talking about today is that we often talk about this art form is this dance form as a dying dance form, because most like, still Gawazi who were actually having it as their profession, it's usually older generation. There is not really people, younger generation, who would continue this tradition as a tradition. Not I'm talking about like or trying to preserve and let's learn the dance and put it on stage, but actively as like being Gawazi, it's not really a thing here. And the, okay, this I would love to hear your opinion. Uh, why do you think there is so little information and video information about different Gawazi? Because we are talking about Kariya Amazin as the most famous one, but there are more than just her and her family. Right. But there is not much information, no video documentation, even today that there are resources like we can video, the video document, try to save it, try to spread information, but there is still, still not much information about that. Yeah, so I mean, it's complicated um and i think it kind of goes into i was going to respond to what you said before you asked that question but i think they're related like um in egypt the most traditional aspects the things that you know like i might define as like the most inherently egyptian forms of entertainment um, and entertainers are considered actually quite low class or othered. Um, not all Gawazi uh, or all people who are working as Gawazi are Roma or uh, Romani, but um, a lot of them come from some kind of uh, uh, similar background where 
ethnically, you might say they're not like 100% Egyptian and therefore they, you know, have historically lived um, marginalized. But of course, there's plenty of people that have like the, the Arab Egyptian ethnic identity, their cultural identity. I don't know this uh, for me, like this part is really confusing, but I understand the concept of like marginalization and the uh, these entertainers have historically been very marginalized and undervalued by the society. Um, you know, like uh, there's plenty of other more uh, informed and well uh, verbalized uh, <laughs> sources out there that you can look at the, you know, like if you want to learn more about the history of like colonization in Egypt and like why that is how it is, there's better sources than my jumbled up brain. Um, but my point here <laughs> is that uh, Egyptians have been taught not to value uh, what is actually most traditional, I would say, if that's a very brief summary. Um, and so there hasn't been like much effort or thought to record that just because it, it wasn't something that was just, you know, it didn't occur as like a, a point of value or a point of necessity, I would say. If you're looking like in the context of Egyptian society, um, foreigners and higher class, uh, things that are associated with the higher class have always gotten the attention and the um, documentation. Like, I think sometimes, I think a good parallel would be like, well, you know, if you have a, the way that people dance at parties or weddings or, you know, like when you're just having a party at your house, like, would you ever think that like, oh, this form of dance needs to be documented? Like this guy's doing the lawnmower. We need to really record that for, you know, future generations. Not, probably not, right? Because it's just so much a part of the day-to-day or the life experience, it may not be day-to-day, -day, right? Because a, a wedding or something like that is probably like once uh, every few years a relative or something is having a party where they might actually have dancers. But it, I think it's just such a, no, such a normal thing that I, I think a lot of people never considered that it could have like historical cultural value. Mm -hmm. Of course, the foreigners seeing something new and unusual were the ones who valued it, but mostly from a, you know, like a Orientalist, like perspective of, uh, exotic thing. Like exotic, 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 exotic thank thing, you. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. My, um, I have a hard time verbalizing <laughs> sometimes. Um, so there are, uh, Gawazi still performing today. But I think the way that we as dancers um, interpret how they're performing um, is different than something like the Banat Mazin when they were active is due to the, the societal changes. Like you're saying, over time, the music changes, costumes change, uh, and of course the movements are going to change in response to those things. What the audience wants to see is a little bit different. So you might have someone from the same kinds of background performing the same kinds of jobs, but um, you might see the rest of those things changing. Um, so I think that 
Uh, and also, of course, we have like the regional differences between Upper Egypt and the Delta. Um, and I just, there's like no information about Gawazi and the Delta because people didn't want to record it. And when foreigners came in, they weren't able to record it um, in vast amounts. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have a big answer for that because there's just not that much information. So it makes mm -hmm. it harder to even answer. I think if we look far enough back in history, we can say, well, most of the Gawazi probably, uh, because of the, like the, the bands where they were kicking people out of Cairo, you know, a lot of them immigrated to Luxor and Isna and other upper Egyptian towns. So that's why you still see a, a bigger populations there. But of course there are Gawazi in the Delta, like Sumbat and Tanta both had, you know, were really famous centers for dance and music. Um, and I think it all, uh, I think one of the other things that complicates this is the way that people define Ra'asa versus Gawazi or Gazea um, varies over, over time and just person to person, like the current, like currently, I think that you will not usually hear um, Gazea or Gawazi. Like if you tell us, if you, if you use that word to people, they, they will understand what you mean, but it will refer to entertainers outside of urban centers, but they could also just be a Ra'asa. Like mm -hmm. they're just a dancer. a dancer. But if you use Gawazi, it's, it's really meaning like when they're outside of urban centers. So they may still be performing Ra'asharki or something between Ra'asharki and Gawazi, Rakshabi, and, you know, Rakspelidi. You know, another good question here is where is the crossover between like home style Roxbelody and Gawazi or Shari. And, you know, like all of these things are mixed in together. The reason that the Benat Mazin and the other Gawazi of the, of let's say Luxor, uh, Kena, maybe Isna, um, Abu Shusha, like this whole region is very close together. Um, the reason that I think that they are so well recognized is because their way of dancing and their co it, it's primarily the costumes. The costumes got the attention because they're quite different than Rakshari costumes. But the movements as well are different enough from home style dance um, that it's recognized as another form. Uh, and I know Nisa has talked a lot about this recently, that like in the north, probably the reason that the Gawazi there in the Delta were not paid more attention to is because their style of movement is much more similar mm. to what we identify as Rakshari or Rakspelidi, um, just because it's a regional thing. They could be doing like the same kind of movement, but the context and where the person's from might make that different. Hmm. I'm probably getting off track. So if you need me to like go down a certain path, let me know. But 
different paths here are more than welcome. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, it's a very interesting uh, conversation and very interesting like points because it's a very complex topic. And I also assume there will be a layer of why lack of documentation because now at this point, with all these layers of community perception of Gawazi, many women will not really want to be documented. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing I wanted to mention. It's like you probably have a lot of lack of documentation because um, of traditional, you know, beliefs. Like some people might call them superstitions, right? But these are like beliefs for a lot of people about like not wanting to be in front of a camera, not wanting to take on the evil eye, not, um, it, you know, it, maybe it could even come down to legalities too. You know, like. Uh, also, people don't want to be identified as being from marginalized communities. They would rather present and keep their social identity uh, as safe a space for them as possible. Um, so, you know, people are not going to go out of their way to be like, oh, yeah, I'm one of these people that society treats like shit and calls thieves. So a really good example of this is the term Nawar here. When I talk to Khairia, and when she, you know, is is communicating about her family, she uses the term Nawar because in her mind, she knows what it means. Uh, you know, it's the this, I don't know if tribe is the right word. I, I'm really, I'm really, maybe someone else can suggest to me. I'm still trying to find what is the appropriate, all-encompassing replacement for the G word. Because in English, we so far don't have one. Because you can't use Roma to cover everybody who's not from the Romani. Yeah, and there are also discussions like, was it really part of Roma, sort of like heritage, let's say, or lineage, or yeah. is it a different nomadic tribe, nomadic community? Like, exactly. there's still discussions about that, too. This is complicated. So, the, so I, from what I understand, the Nawar are part of Domari heritage, which is like the branch of Romani that went down into Egypt. Um, and according to, to Khairiya's family oral history, generations and generations back, they came like through Kurdistan, maybe through Iran, um, from who knows where, but like that's, that's the part that sticks in the memory and that I've heard over and over is like at some point, some ancestor, Nur al-Din, was from Kurdistan or came through Kurdistan. And that's where the Nawar got their name from Nur uh, Eldin, I'm missing one of those words because it's not right in front of me, but um, in Egypt, anytime I try to talk to non-dancers, non-Khairia, <laughs> about, oh, I have two stories about this, but anytime I try and uh, talk to people about Gawazi and Nawar, uh, I have experienced that people get extremely uptight like some, some people are even afraid to use the word in certain contexts. Uh, like one time I had a most recent translator I had, she was a different one than the one we usually work with, was a young girl, I'm guessing early mid twenties, uh, first time translating with Kyria, and I was trying to ask about the Nawar and she's like, I can't say that word to Kyria. Like I, 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 can't, I can't say that to her because in her mind, she only knew Nawar the way that my manager and, and Sokhna did, the way that other people I've talked to in Cairo and Luxor did. They know Nawar to mean, it's, a, it's kind of a, a not polite way to refer to this group of people that are socially thought of as like thieves, uh, probably, you know, there's, there's more, more to go in with that, you know, like 
any any uh, like most marginalized society, what do you think of them? Probably think of them as prostitutes. Uh, they do drugs. They're thieves. They live in the this this you know not nicest of places. Like that's the sort of mentality around this word. Um, and in my poor Arabic, when I'm communicating with people, you know, like they use the word like to make me understand what they understand about it is like harami, like thieving. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you can understand why the translator might not want to like use that word to Kyria about herself and her family. And Kyria had to explain to her, like, no, we are the Nawar. We are a group, you know, our family is from this place and we get our name from our ancestor. That's her, that's the current story that she tells, uh, you know, how she thinks about her family history. And I think a big part of that is because she is... It's her way of teaching people a more positive history of, um, and a positive association with the word, you know, and she is in a safe space where she can do that. But if you look at past interviews with her or her father, um, you know, they're, I think that they were much more shy about being open about that. And I don't think on the street she would ever be like, yeah, I'm Nawar. No, she's doing that because she knows that in the context of dance and other dancers and foreign dancers specifically have come to her to learn because she's Nawar, because she's a Gazaya. And so while both of these terms are not polite in Egypt, uh, it's a term that the foreigners understand. And so she is using it because it's a term they use with her, and she's trying to make it a more positive thing. This is my perspective on mm-hmm. this. Yeah, it's interesting, like, we have uh, quite a few discussions, even like in ballet dance field and industry about different terminology, and I don't know, the more I talk about it, the more it's realization. It's not really the term or the word itself, it's all these layers and connotations that some people put in it, but there are some people who don't put in it. So it's always needs to be seen in a context and in the, I don't know, intention of person, like what exactly she or he is trying to to deliver, what kind of message and why this term is used. So it's not necessarily about the word itself. Yeah, you know, I've thought this for years that, you know, Egypt is very, um, the appropriateness is based on context. And I, Originally, when I was going down this line of thought, this was even before I came to Egypt, but what I understood was that like Ra'sharqi is, or like the movements of Ra'sharqi, the costumes, etc. It's all based on context in, you know, that's why dance is taboo. You can do the, all the, even more sexy things than what dancers do on stage in a party at home with your girlfriends. And they're like, yeah, you go girl, like show us what you got. Or you can do that for your husband or whatever, you know, like in the appropriate circumstances, it's not what you're doing, but whereas like in the US, we are very much like it's what, I mean, context is kind of important, but also it's more about like the what and the how rather than like the the when and the where, I think. Mm. Obviously it's not like a rule across the board, but. Speaking of, uh girls and parties, uh, when we talk about Gawazi dance, we are primarily talking about female dance. And correct me if I'm wrong here, because typically male 
population of that community would be musicians? Um, so this is something I've been trying to understand too. So first thing we need to, to recognize is that Gawazi or Ghazaya, Ghazaya is the singular, Gawazi is the plural. This is a job title. It is not a ethnic identification or a cultural identification. It's a job title that applies to the dancers. Um, I do think there's at least, uh, I've never seen myself, but I do think that a few years ago I saw something online about a male Gawazi dancer, um, but I could never track down to get more information, but I don't know if that was the term of convenience because it was a video being shown to foreign dancers. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that would, is something that would be used uh, locally for a male dancer. I think they might just be called like a dancer. I could be wrong, but that's something I haven't experienced myself because historically we have terms for male dancers that now if you can't, you, you like, you cannot call a male dancer like Hawal or Gink, like it would just be like beyond uh, insulting, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and and Razea, as far as I know, are like female terms. The musicians, you don't call them Gawazi. They're not Gawazi because mm -hmm. they're not dancers, even if they dance a little. <laughs> uh, they're musicians. They may be from, uh, again, insert correct replacement for G word as a like, you know, overall title here, but they may be Nawar, they may be Halib, they may be Bahloan, they may be something else that we, I have not learned the title to but they're not Gawazi. They may play the music that the Gawazi mm -hmm. dance to, um, but they themselves are not Gawazi. So I think that's something that I have realized since being here. And one of the interesting things that I'm trying to learn more about, one of the questions I had coming here that I wanted to understand more from Khairia and the musicians uh, local, uh, local to you know the ones she was working with, is, you know, like, what is Gawazi music? Because previously, no one had really been able to answer for me what's the difference between, like, Saidi music and Gawazi music. And from my current base of understanding, my thoughts are that um, there... <clears throat> I don't think there is much division. I think that the Gawazi dance to Saidi music, but... You have famous musicians like Metal Kanawi um, and uh, Reis um, Abdullah, who unfortunately passed away recently. Um, there's other ones like, uh, I think, Reis uh, Ramadan. There's a whole like list that Hyria has been giving me names of. I've been trying to track down who are the Mizmar players and who are the Rababa players and their groups. Um, I cannot confirm like what uh, subcultural ethnic identity, you know, whatever we want to say these people are from, but I think that most of the traditional musicians like the Mizmar and the Rababa bands are coming from the same kind set of marginalized people um, that you see the Gawazi coming from. And a lot of times they're from the same family groups, right? Like the men of the family will play for so the women of the family who are the dancers. Um, so there is a stylistic trend because you're looking at a, a like 
I would at this point probably call Mizmar and Rababa music a its own genre of music. You can hear a lot. You can have a lot of the same songs played by the Furta, uh, which I, like when I was in, living in Luxor and I got to go to a lot of local um, weddings. What I noticed is that you, they would either have like a Rababa band, they, like a lot of nights they would have like a Rababa or Mizmar band. They would have a DJ night, and then some of the big weddings would have the Furka, which is maybe like the the keyboard and a Shabi singer. But shabby as in like Hakim type songs, not shabby as in like Mizmar uh, Melody. Like you know, like there's different. Like it's confusing because that that word means so many things here. But you know, you might have the the tabal, the the keyboard, um, the singer, and other kinds of uh, tacht instruments. Um, this is in the modern context, right? I'm not talking mm-hmm. about like, I don't know what they were doing 40 years ago exactly, but what I'm seeing now is that it's a different style of music. And even if they're playing the same kinds of songs, um, because, you know, one band might sing Bidentini uh, Tani Le, they're all going to play it a little differently, but these are like popular uh, traditional folk songs, right? Maybe not like 100 years old, but like within the last 50 years or something. Um, but specifically, the Mizmar and Rababa have their own embedded structure, melodies um, that create the style of music. And what I've noticed is it's not limited just to the presence of Gawazi. Um, and Surely someone more educated than me can hopefully talk more about this, but this is the resources we're looking for. <laughs> That's why we're here. Um, what I started to notice when I was watching Tahtib uh, and at weddings and at like the Tahtib festival and things, is like the same musicians are playing a lot of the same music or the same melodies um, in both of these contexts, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like every song and, or thing that they're playing in Tahtib could be used by a dancer, but there's definitely crossover. And, um, I, for lack of a better terminology, because I haven't had the opportunity to really do sit down interviews with the musicians there yet at length, um, I'm just calling this like Ashra structure, you know, because like when I talk with Khairia and we're trying to pick out like a lot of what we did was sitting down and listening to like the recordings from Aisha Ali, uh, from Edwina, or not from Edwina, from Eva Chernik, like uh, Morocco, we looked at the videos that they recorded back in the day, you know, we looked at um, uh, any source of music that I, you know, had for her and her sisters, and we're saying, and the, the ones that I recorded with her, and I'm going, what's this, what's this, what's this? And we can say like, oh, that's this song. This is a two stanzas of, you know, like this popular song. So a lot of times we have like the melody from something like, um, 
You know, you might have them actually singing it, the dancers might sing it, or it might just be the melody, but it's embedded into the structure that is creating this thing. And when we have things that are not identifiable songs or tunes, she would just be like, it's just dance. It's just ashara. Hmm. It's, there might be, like, there are more than one or two little melodies that don't seem to have names. You know, this is one of the things I want to try and figure out. Sorry. But um, they keep repeating them, so it's not improvisation. No, because they, they are an embedded part of the structure. So hmm. everybody, you know, like, the musicians know them, the dancer knows them. Um, and maybe, like, they can kind of ask for them. Like, I've heard Khairia a couple times. She'll kind of, like, sing one of the, the tunes that she wants, and then they'll do that. Mm. Um, and they, they're pretty short, but they are definitely a thing, you know? It's just one of those, like, nonverbal things that uh -huh. we don't really know, have a name for. Um, so... If I'm kind of getting back to the point about like Gawazi versus Saidi, well, like this is Saidi music. This is the music they were playing at weddings, at celebrations, at the Tahtib events, just, you know, for fun. But in certain contexts, the dancers are, professional dancers are dancing to it. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Um, Yeah, we started this conversation by talking about actually your research and you just now a little bit, I was about to say to ask, oh, so how was the process of research? And you already <laughs> kind of answered it, that it was not only classes, videos, but also a lot of conversations and digging into music and uh, interviews. Uh, but I also want to ask uh, at which point you feel your research project is currently at this moment? Yeah, so... Um... I don't know that there's ever like completely finished, but I got to a point where I had enough information. Like uh, after I was in Luxor for a year, you know, we had done interviews where I sat down at, like a lot of the first months of interviews were literally just me trying to figure out her family tree for hours and hours and having to double check, like, this is what you said, right? Because information changes a lot so that we could identify who are the artists in the family. Because there's more than what, you know, the famous ones. And we filmed classes with her so that people can look at the recorded lessons. We looked at the music together to identify pieces of music and lots and lots and lots of other things. And after a year, um, you know, I was able to finally kind of sit down and build this website. And once I got all the things on the website, um, we spent, I think I spent, uh, well, I mean, I took a break for like six months because I, I went to the U.S. in the summer and my brain was just like, I, I was in hyper-focus mode for like a month and a half, day and night, glued to the screen, building this website. And then my brain was like, and we need a break. For like eight months, <laughs> I couldn't look at anything, uh, which is probably not the best way to run a brandly new published website, but here we are. So the things that we were doing after that included um, that I found this album of 
music on YouTube of like 22 songs from uh, Soad and Raja and Khairiya singing. Um, and one of the big next parts of the project is to translate these lyrics that we've been writing down for a year so that we have, I don't know if it, I'm, I'm hoping it will become a book, but we'll see what happens in the, in the end. Because uh, it's like taking a lot more work that I just haven't been able to get to. But part of this was taking this album of 22 songs and translating the songs so that there's Arabic, a transliteration, and the English translation so that people can start to learn and sing the music. Mm. Because I think that this is an important next part of people properly presenting Rakshabi or Gawazi, you know, like... Uh, they need to have the resources to to make it more well-rounded. So we were releasing those over the last year in the blog format. Most of them are part of the subscribers blog. You know, it's something that goes to help support the costs of the website and Kyria, you know, gets money from the website um, as long as we have people uh, invested in supporting, of course. Um, and so that's one of the perks, I guess, for, for subscribers. It's frustrating a little bit because I realize that most people are not that interested in it. Or they may just not know about it. They may not, but I think what I realized about the dance community is like, there's a very tiny percent of people who actually want to invest the time to prioritize learning these things. And a lot of other people just think like, well, that's cool. And that's, that's fine, right? Everyone has the, you know, the freedom to prioritize what is important to them. But because it's something that I care about so much, and I don't even know why, really, but I just know that it's a thing I have to do, I sometimes forget that other people might not be as invested in it as me, right? And so... The resources are there and hopefully, you know, it will be something that people will love to use or I don't know, maybe it will become useful for like future anthropologists or something. But current stance, we have the 22 songs uploaded in blog format where you can like listen to the song and sing along. Um, we have seven or eight albums of music. Um, a lot of them have notes about which, you know, songs and which melodies are playing with the timestamps as much as I've been able to do so far. There's um, a whole library of Khairia dancing to her cassettes, her recorded, the, the music that she's been using forever and ever so that people can see um, her on different songs and practice along with her. There's also a section where I break down the movements for people who need a little bit more, um, you know, like what is what's happening here with these movements. There's an interactive family tree with biographies or information about each person and photos when available. So you can go in and like look at different branches of the family trees and like learn about this person and this person. And um, there's even more. There's some like there's a lot of stuff. Oh yeah. You know, I said before, like, where is that consolidated list of resources? Boom, that's there as much as possible. All of the 
the documentaries, the films, the interviews, the articles, the, uh, there's even a, a link to a YouTube list, you know, like everything that I could possibly imagine that somebody might need in order to learn this dance when they cannot study in person with Kyria, I have tried to provide. And one of the, I think, things that is, I find frustrating is like, I'm at this point where there's not a lot more I can add. And unfortunately, the way that social media and the way that we like online products now, people kind of, especially with like a subscription thing, right? People expect new, new content every month. And after a certain point, there's not going to be more that I can add, you know, like, especially because I have to like move on with my life and work on other things. Um, so there's, there's still more content to add to this. And like I said, there's still probably 60 songs and couplets and things to translate that I have to like sit down and go through 32 hours of interviews to clip out. So I've been avoiding that for a long time, <laughs> but also, you know, like a lot of these things take money and I just don't have any funding. So it's, you know, I can only do a little bit here and there, but at a certain point, and I've kind of reached that point now where for the most part, there's, there's not a lot more I can add. I had other grand dreams about like having people like Aisha Ali and Pepper and the other ones who studied with her and her older sisters um, add content to the website, you know, to, to get their, uh, uh, a more varied perspective on the movements and the, the things that they learned back then that are different than, you know, the information that I have now, because of course information's changed over time as well, but I'm not sure that that's going to be possible. Um, oh, send in messages to universe. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Unfortunately, you know, uh, I haven't gotten a, a real supportive response, uh, in those kinds of cases. And of course people are all aging and it becomes less and less feasible. People don't want to film things or teach online or various other things. Right. So that some of the ideas I had for the website, um, which I may have been telling people about, like, maybe they're just not possible. Like this thing with Reis Abdullah, who I mentioned passed away. I've been waiting for over a year to interview him to get the notes for the music I recorded um, when he played for Khairia. It's one of the performance, uh, live music performances we recorded for the website, and I wanted to get all the notes for the music, and I couldn't afford to come down and interview him. Uh, and then he passed away. And so some of those things, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it now. Um, there's a chance I might be able to interview his son or something, but it won't be him and it won't be his knowledge. And that's part of, was one of the motivating factors of coming to Egypt. It's like, I, I can't wait to have more resources because people are literally dying. And it's not my place to try and save the save the history or save the culture or whatever right like you know there's a whole lot of complicated layers around that but um i just know that it's something that i need to do and even if it's not the highest quality filming and even if only like 15 people on the planet care about it it's uh what I'm here to do, I guess. I don't know. 
Well, it's very cool when we, you know, have this calling or passion towards something, even if we don't realize, but it's even cooler when we allow ourselves to follow it, because you could have found so many excuses like, oh, it's too far, Egypt is too far from where originally, like, oh, Corona, oh, no money, or I don't know the language, like, there could have been so many excuses and you still overpass them and you just follow and you made it happen and the um, places and so resources like this they are valuable by definition it may be not in this particular moment maybe you don't feel it this way from community but i'm pretty sure like one of the biggest issues is just uh, many people don't know about it yeah. uh, so it's not even the matter of interest or not interest caring not caring it's just like okay where to find where to find this resource and it's now maybe uh, after you I don't know replenish take some break <laughs> re-energize maybe your focus will be okay now how to spread awareness about this resource so it's not about building the resource itself but delivering it and letting people know about it uh, its existence so it's a different topic it's a different game I would say so yeah. it's, it's, a, a, it's a big challenge and I feel like for me like I I've always been aware of what my skill set is and it is not marketing like I need a team like and also because I the way that my brain is I'm becoming more familiar <laughs> with how my brain functions I hyper focus and then I want to move on like I had never intended for this to be something that I would have to caretake for the rest of my life. But it, it basically is, especially, you know, and I don't have a problem with that, but I know that it's something that I need assistance to manage. And I, I'm aware that I'm very linguistically limited and that's been one of the biggest challenges. It's like one of my visions for the website was to have, like I have it embedded you know, where it can be in multiple languages, but it doesn't auto-translate. I basically have to have people come in and translate each page, every piece of information, and then input that in manually. And I would love for that to happen, uh, but I haven't really had any like volunteers forthcoming who actually followed through. Like there've been people like, yeah, I've been willing to do that. And then they, they never followed through, which is fine. There's a lot there. <laughs> I think that piece will be solved very soon, very easily with artificial intelligence yeah. and the new tools that are soon will be so valuable yeah, to well, us. Like, with Google Translate, you can use the camera feature or just like copy and paste. And so that solves a lot of the things. But it, I, you know, I don't want it to just be limited to an English speaking audience. And especially because, you know, like the, what I've noticed, the people who are really, really interested in this Brazilians, South Americans, I don't know, like what's on the game now, but like they really want to learn. Like I was always booking stuff with Kyria online and you know, like I have some friends in Russia and like, but they're because of like internet restrictions and various other things, it makes it very difficult. You know, like you can't like even like payment limitations, you know, like they can't pay for it because it it's an American based system and it won't accept the payments like, it's just stupid stuff like that. But like, you know, I, I, I want the information to be accessible. That is like the main tenet of the website is accessibility of information and supporting Khairia. Those are the two important parts for me that people can learn from her and that it's benefiting her. 
So let's share the resources. Where can people go and find this website and where they can follow your activities? Do you have like favorite social media platform or any other places like that? <laughs> yeah, so the website is banatmazin.com, B-A-N-A-T-M-A-Z-I-N.com. Just uh, the way it sounds. And um, we ha- she also has, Khairia Mazin has a Facebook page and we have the Bennett Mazin Instagram page, uh, both are which rarely updated, but I'm trying. The Facebook page was created by Chiria's request so that people can contact her directly for lessons because one of the big issues that she has is that when people book through impresarios, the impresarios take a big portion of her fee. Uh, so we have provided information on the website contact page and on um, Chiria's Facebook page with Heba's, uh, Heba is the translator. You can contact her on WhatsApp or send her a message on, um, or call her when you get to Egypt, if you feel too shy to call Chiria directly and she can help you to arrange classes. Um, you know, like that's an important thing there for myself. I, uh, due to the rising costs of the world, I had to cancel my website and basically every other thing, Teachable, Patreon, doesn't work in Egypt without a VPN and I've never been able to get a VPN to work here. So I don't have any of those things anymore. I just have an Instagram, which frankly is too much for me to keep up with most of the time, but I do post a lot in my stories. (laughs) So if that's where you want to find me, you can like message me on Instagram or follow me on my stories um, or message me on Facebook if we're friends there. I'm not accepting new friend requests on Facebook. I'm kind of done with that platform other than messaging. Uh, So that's the thing. And you would find me under Shining Peacekeeper. And as a reminder, Shining is S-H-I-N-I-N-G because in English, you take the E off and you add I-N-G. It is not shinning. A lot of people try and spell my name shinning with two N's. And I mean, unless you're rubbing your shin against something, I don't think that's a thing. Personal pet peeve. Well, I will definitely <laughs> add direct links to all these pages. So for everyone who is listening, it will be easy to find the correct one. And that's cool also to hear about Korea. Uh, I didn't know that because... I had to try to contact via someone to find the contact, but it's awesome that there is a direct contact, maybe not yeah, as There's a- even a map to her house, which is like a little, mm, kind of could be weird, but I tried to make it as easy as possible. Like, here's where she is, here's the number, because she re- you know, she's not working except for foreigners. Yes. So if people are not coming to visit her, you know, like she's, she relies on that. She doesn't have a lot of extra support as far as I understand. Um, and one of the things I was offering when I was in Luxor, you know, I, I tried to, to let people know I was there. Um, and now that I've moved out of Luxor, it's harder, but not impossible to arrange. If you want to take online lessons with her or arrange online workshops or um, do interviews with her for your own research, I... I or Heba can help arrange that. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a lot easier when I was living in Luxor because I had my own apartment and stuff, but it's, um, it is still possible uh, with some planning to, to do that if you cannot come to Egypt because of course, like it's expensive to come here and it's very confusing, but that's something that I want to make available to people if, um, 
if they're interested. That's really great to know. Also, a little note that Karia herself, for she doesn't really speak English. So during uh, like these logistic organizations, it's easier to have someone. But it's also cool to know about Facebook because maybe you can just message and translate and now to translate yourself pre-translate before and send exactly. like you know tomorrow well, this if you're time. Class. If you're contacting <laughs> on Facebook, you're contacting me because I'm the. Oh, she's awesome. not on. She is not on the internet at all, <laughs> which is why I, re I always tell people to contact Heba, uh, because Heba lives there in Luxor, has Khairia's number, you know, they're friends, so she can help arrange something. Even if Heba's not available, she can find another translator or someone to help you. So um, awesome. if I'm like, I am, uh, she, I, would, I would almost say she's the better person to contact. You are welcome to contact me, but I'm just going to refer you to Heba because I'm not in Luxor and it's a... Uh, uh, unless you need like an online class or something, which is probably something that Heba and I have to arrange together, um, then you're better off just contacting her mm. and all of that information's on the website and the Facebook page. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this information today and uh, for sharing uh, so much about your research and about uh, career uh, work and about your experience in dance and specifically in Egypt and I know there is much more to it oh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess let's you know portion information <laughs> that's not overwhelming. I could talk for hours and yes, hours more yes, about all that. Yes I know but uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing and before we finish I would love to ask you our traditional question of the podcast that you may know or may not maybe forgot if you heard any episodes but I would really love to finish on the note uh, related personally to you. So what makes you fall in love is belly dance, oriental dance, Egyptian dance again and again. So you keep doing it for so many years. Well, first I just want to thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope that uh, being able to share something about my experiences uh, will be useful to other people. Um, I think this question is a really good one. The last two years in Egypt have really tested this because uh, when I came, I was not really in love with dance and it's taken most of the last two years to come back to a place where I uh, feel like it's lighting me up. And I don't really have a good answer for the why. I think it just took moving to a different place in my life. But the thing, the thing that's always amazed me about how I've been able to stay involved in the same thing for well, 18, 19 years now is, because um, I don't know if you caught this, I may have a little like ADHD or something, you know, my brain goes all over the place, is because there's so much to learn. Like there's so many facets under this umbrella of belly dance and so many places you can go that it's hard to, you know, if you get bored, you can like, you're like, oh, I'm tired of Egyptian dance. You can learn Turkish, you can learn American Oriental, you can learn to play a drum, you can become a researcher or, you know, you can get niche focused into Nabawaya Mustafa or some other random person, which is what I'm currently doing. So that's what's keeping me afloat right now is having niche hyper focuses and then allowing myself to just like take the Raksharki part of that a little less seriously. You know, like I think the, the dream crusher for a lot of us is uh, 
feeling like we're not going anywhere. So if we can find an avenue in which we feel like it's giving something back to us, I think that's what allows us to keep going. And for me, that has been like doing this project with Khairia and now kind of working on Nabuya Mustafa content and like trying to learn more about her life. I get those little dopamine hits where I'm like, oh yeah, this is good stuff. Like that kind of eases the pressure off of, oh my God, I'll never make it as a belly dancer in my life. Woe is me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good advice and a good tip for, for many dancers who feel stuck or maybe or this, um, uh, unsatisfied yeah. or lack of inspiration currently. Your like... brain might fight it. Maybe like, because you know, you, we focus so much on the thing that's not working because it's not working and it's what we really wanted. But sometimes we just have to like put it aside or sidestep it or find the other route. Even if it's the one where like, like I was really frustrated, like that people wanted me to do folklore stuff because I could do it, but I always wanted to be doing Rakshari. And now here I am and I've gotten into Rakshari, but it's supporting the folklore basically. <laughs> and I'm kind of okay with that at this point. Like I, I might just be like, bye Rakshari, let's go do this other thing and just do that for fun occasionally. I don't know. We're waiting to see. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, bringing more consistency and more fun into your dance training online. Check it out at yanadanceclub.com, direct link in the show notes. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends, as well as leave a review on iTunes or any other app you're using to listen to the show. The more people know about this podcast, the easier it is for me to bring even more awesome guests. Until next time, keep shimming and keep dancing.